This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. This week, we're having a very special guest, Seth Anziska. Um, he's a professor at University College London, and he is a specialist on the Middle East and specifically the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's lived there. He's studied there. Uh, he's written books about it. So um, we're in for some enlightenment, I think. All right. Really happy today to welcome Seth Anziska to No Politics on the Dinner Table. Um, Seth is the Mohammed S. Farsi Lindenbaum Associate Professor of Jewish-Muslim Relations at University College London, and he's also the founding director of the Middle East Research Center there. He is the author of a wonderful book um, called Preventing Palestine, A Political History from Camp David to Oslo, which was published by Princeton in 2018 and has recently been translated into Arabic. Uh, the Guardian had this to say about his book, and here I quote, um, his combination of original research and personal fearlessness has produced one of the most compelling works of political and diplomatic, diplomatic history I've ever read. And I would have to agree, that's really just kind of an outstanding um, and gripping piece of historical writing and research. Uh, today, he's here to talk about the present crisis in Gaza and also his November piece in the New York Review of Books entitled, Let Us Not Hurry to Our Doom. So Seth, welcome to New Politics at the Dinner Table. Great. It's wonderful to be here. And you left out the most important thing, which is that I was also your student in my first history of the modern Middle East class. As an That's right. That I was indeed Seth's TA, right? <laughs> And it's great to see him again and great to see him just like thriving all over the world. It's amazing. Um, so I have, you know, a couple questions to start with and we can see where the conversation goes. But one thing that I noticed about the piece is that you frame it with two pieces of poetry. And I found the whole piece to be kind of very, you know, very beautifully and lyrically written. And I was wondering what drew you to this framing. Why, why start um, you know, start and end it with poetry? Well, it, in a way, it goes back to the experience of becoming a political and diplomatic historian of the Middle East and Israel and Palestine, which is that you spend all this time immersed in archival material, thinking about contingency and causality and trying to make arguments on the basis of the evidence that you find. And the first book that I wrote that came out of my PhD was really an attempt to trace genealogy of Palestinian statelessness, how it was produced, how it was sustained. And I had this very naive idea, which I think many historians start out with, which is if I uncover the evidence or if I tell you a really convincing story on the basis of what I have found, I will be able to contribute to changing the way people think about this political problem and about its um, longevity and its perpetual recurrence, the fact that there hasn't been a resolution in this instance to the question of Palestinian self-determination. And what I found in the experience of working on this, which I think a lot of people share when you're in the historical profession, is the limits of what you can do as a historian and the fact that the, the uncovering of evidence or the finding of information 
or the writing of a book about these processes does not necessarily contribute to political change or does not necessarily contribute to a shift in consciousness and understanding. And that was something I had been thinking a lot about even prior to what happened uh, in this latest round of violence in the war since October 7th. And when October 7th happened and this aftermath, um, immediately it was really difficult for me to kind of cling to the traditional mechanisms of historical research and thinking because they seemed totally insufficient and totally out of character with the moment and the feelings aroused by the war and by what has now transpired in Gaza. Uh, and so in that context, like turning to poetry became almost a coping mechanism mm -hmm. that there is no real way to kind of just think about this uh, in analytical terms, but there's something way deeper and way more tragic and way more lacerating happening here that requires a different kind of medium. And that's probably why I, I turn to that. And, and, and the insufficient nature of the craft of historical writing in a moment of catastrophe is what drew me okay, there. Okay, great. Um, I wanted to also ask you if you could talk a little bit... Um, you know, I'd mentioned that little quotation that I pulled from The Guardian about your personal fearlessness. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your background, how you were raised, um, and your, your shift of worldview, um, effectively, um, as you came to learn different things, I suppose, um, about Israel and Palestine and how that has driven both, and I, I remember this from, from you as a student, you saying this, that you want to do historical research, but you also want to engage in the world and, and transform things and participate in political processes. Um, and, you know, what your, your worry, and as you described it, the naivete about historical research and, and the contributions it will make to changing the boundaries of discourse and things like that are a testament to a sort of consistency um, in, and it seems like an abiding interest in changing things and hoping to change things. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your background and how that made you the intellectual that you are today. Well, you know, it's something I ended up writing about in the preface to my first book, at the encouragement of my editor, which was to try and explain how and why I came to think about some of these questions. And it's not always easy to do that because so much of the um, requirements of the historical profession, at least ostensibly, is you're kind of disassociating or you're not supposed to insert yourself mm -hmm. into the conversation. But of course, we all know that in the struggle for objectivity, everybody brings a certain kind of subjective experience. Why would I ask the questions I ask? Why would I choose to write about the subject that I do? Why would you choose to write about the subject that you do? Like we're all making so many different discussions, sort of calculations and decisions in our heads when we even go into an archive and think about what material is interesting to us. And for me, you know, I was raised in a modern Orthodox Jewish home in uh, New York and New Jersey and very strong attachments to Israel and to Zionism, very strong attachments to Jewish tradition and texts and observance and a particular worldview and understanding of uh, Israel that emanated from that uh, and that was attached to a kind of both biblical sense of uh, meaning but also a nationalist 
understanding of community and belonging to land and to place. Um, and I think lots of people who grew up in that kind of ideological context tend to be pretty clear-eyed about their allegiance and their attachment and not necessarily question it. Um, I was, uh, as part of the education I had, I spent a year studying in a yeshiva, kind of immersed in Talmud and other religious study um, in Israel, and actually in the West Bank um, in 2001 and 2002, before I arrived at Columbia and took your class. Um, and the experience of being there and kind of coming face to face with the reality of what was happening, in particular being uh, close to political violence of the Second Intifada and experiencing that up close, uh, it really disturbed me. And it also made me ask questions that I wasn't supposed to ask uh, about how and why and where this violence comes from and, and moving beyond kind of simplistic answers of it's all X's fault or it's, you know, this is the violence that Palestinians bring upon themselves, which is often a kind of popular response in the community I grew up in. But actually, what does it mean to live and operate and function in a, a kind of ethno-national context where you're traveling on Jewish-only roads and you're in the middle of the architecture of an occupation and a reality of separation between Jewish and non-Jewish communities um, and who has access and who's allowed to go and come in different particular contexts. So I, I, I could now see it and understand it and explain it in political terms. I couldn't quite do that at the time. But uh, as a result of that experience, um, when I got to university, I was just really wanting to know more and to study more. And so for me, the way to do that was to read and to start studying Middle Eastern history, international history, Arabic, and that whole uh, kind of exposure to those different kinds of ideas uh, obviously was super confronting and challenging, but it also opened up the possibility of history as a kind of way to think through all of the assumptions that you might grow up with in an ideological context and to start interrogating them more responsibly. And so I became very interested in thinking about the genealogy of, of where some of the dynamics in particular around Palestinian statelessness come from, but also in the experience then of getting to go into archives and do research on the ground in Israel, but also spending time <clears throat> elsewhere in Lebanon and Syria and Palestine. Um, I started asking other questions about what is it to kind of move between these political spaces and to have an ability to kind of engage and think through questions that you might otherwise not have been exposed to from the worlds that you, you grew up in. And that was really exciting, exhilarating. It's a bit scary to, to think about in your context of a kind of community that demands a certain conformity. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're in an archive, I think, in particular actually, or when you're in a library, the unraveling is a little bit controlled and it's a little bit um, connected to the, the materials that you're finding and the questions become connected to that. And uh, that's sort of, I guess, a, a long way of answering you know, how I became interested in some of this. And, and also the, the, the fact that you're, you're not supposed to ask certain questions is exactly why I went and started asking them. I think that there's this, you know, desire to avoid the difficult space and actually 
rejecting that or feeling like actually you need to kind of ask the uncomfortable questions is probably what, what drove a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's fascinating because, you know, it brings me right to one of the points that you make early on in your piece in the New York Review of Books. Uh, and I'm going to quote here. Um, and it kind of brings together your interest um, in, if I can put it this way, being a kind of engaged intellectual, right? That, that you are uh, public facing to a certain extent um, and you are trying and you're hoping, right? <laughs> you're hoping that your naivete actually becomes truth, right? That, that your, your contributions do transform conversations and things like that. But I'll just read the quotation here. Um, Historians are always trying to look backwards to make sense of the present. But when we do, when do we sound the alarm? What can understanding the past achieve when there seems to be an insatiable drive to repeat it? So um, you're, you seem to suggest here and you know, through the piece that there's something to be learned from Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982 with regard to the present war. And um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on some of the parallels or analogies or lessons that you see either in the thoughts and actions that obtained at that time and what light they may shed on what's happening now. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the specificity of every conflict or every war is obviously something one needs to be attendant to, that it's not constantly a repeat of the right. past. We know this, that things aren't just replicated. But there are particular patterns and particular kinds of modes of, um, uh, of violence that played out in past experiences that shape, I think, this one and will continue to shape what's happening um, between Israel and the wider region and Israel and the Palestinians. And the experience of 1982, which I've always been interested in and started out thinking about because when I was in the archives working on my first book, I was able to access material from the 82 war that was just declassified. And it, you know, I'm born in May of 1983, so I can reveal my age and the fact that I wasn't even alive during the war, but the beginning of the war. But there was always a curiosity about how and why this war unfolded. Uh, it's the first time Israel finds itself directly invading an, in an urban Arab capital and a neighboring Arab country in the context of Lebanon in June of 1982. Um, it's uh, a war that is seen and is described uh, as a war of choice by the government at the time of Menachem Begin. And there's a huge amount of domestic opposition to that war at the same time that there's also a very ambitious idea that Israel could go into its neighboring country and essentially initiate some kind of regime change to bring about a Christian Maronite government. This is an attempt to also displace and suppress the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, um, which had been, uh, cr had created a very successful base of um, militant and political activity in Beirut after they had been kicked out of Jordan during Black September in 1970. And so in the intervening years, the PLO itself and Palestinian nationalists had used Lebanon as a base for much of their political and military operations, but also had become implicated in the civil war in Lebanon that broke out in 1975. And the Israelis, in the wake of the Camp David Accords and the peace deal with Egypt, saw an opportunity 
uh, to neutralize some of the threats that the PLO posed and Palestinian nationalism more broadly. And so the idea was, and this was very much based, as we now know, on kind of faulty intelligence from the Mossad, that they would be able to kind of create this um, relationship with the Maronite Christian community that would overcome the threats, quote-unquote, posed by um, uh, Palestinian nationalists and by the sort of wider Sunni majority in uh, in Lebanon. Um, and it lulled the Israelis into this false sense of a kind of war that could initially start as a small incursion but had much more ambitious aims that would move beyond 40 kilometers in the south and move up to Beirut um, and was really an expansive and is seen as kind of a colonial war and a, it's considered as Israel's Vietnam getting stuck in the Lebanese mud as it's described in Hebrew and the idea was that they would be able to remake the Lebanese state as this Christian ally. They would be able to remove the PLO. They would be able to fend off Syrian influence. And of course, this isn't how it played out. In the first 10 weeks of the war, you had 19,000 Lebanese Palestinian combatants and civilians who were killed, scores of Israelis, um, soldiers, um, and, and obviously brought in the Americans, the French. There was a huge amount of international intervention in this war. And it, it's became a kind of laboratory for trying to create conditions um, in your immediate backyard of uh, a kind of neutralizing a political threat by military means that didn't succeed. And it was seen as a war of overreach. Suddenly you had Israelis fighting in urban landscapes. Um, you had a huge amount of air power being dropped on Beirut and inside and in the south. And it created a huge um, outcry and public uh, dissent. And th this, of course, became even more severe by September of 1982, after the PLO had been uh, evacuated to Tunis, um, when Palestinian civilians who remained behind were defenseless and targeted by phalangist militiamen with the knowledge of Israeli uh, generals and troops. Um, in the southern refugee camps of Beirut of Sabra Shatila, and this led to a, a massacre, an infamous massacre, which the Americans as well were aware of and complicit unwittingly in its, uh, in its unfolding. And the consequences of all of that, the accrual of criticism, the internal doubts in Israel, the external critique, it instigated a huge movement of um, domestic opposition, what's known as Peace Now, which had been created in the aftermath of 1978. Um, there was an organization called Yesh Gavul, or There Is a Limit, which was of pilots and other fighters who refused to engage in military service. And it caused a kind of wider social and cultural uh, questioning of the war aims and of the point of doing this. And one of the things that really interested me in in the parallels is both the the ways in which this particular war does and does not resemble that one but the fact that it, you have again this kind of massive saturation bombing of highly condensed civilian areas in the case of gaza you have uh, a, a kind of attempt or effort to try and root out um a, a, a kind of palestinian um uh, a sort of uh, 
well, what is what is a core constituent element of the Palestinian national movement in the, in the guise of Hamas, also a militant and violent organization that's in, engaged in practices um, uh, of, of, of armed resistance, um, and in the case of October 7th, carries out heinous, egregious acts uh, against civilian population, the belief that you can successfully decimate or destroy such a movement through this military means without any kind of political program. It's a startling parallel to these efforts in, in the past. And of course, when that happened in 1982, and the PLO was somewhat, you could say, successfully expelled and you know rooted out of its base in Lebanon, the broader term consequences is that it reconstituted itself in the diaspora. Much of the political efforts in Palestinian politics shifted on the ground into the West Bank and Gaza instigated the outbreak of the First Intifada in 1987 and indirectly led to the recognition of the PLO, including by the United States, which had sworn off the possibility of that. One of Ronald Reagan's last acts in office is recognition of the PLO in 1988. So of course, there are all of these unintended consequences that come out of that. And so it's way too early in this case to tell what that will look like in the context of this war. But um, we're hearing some of the same kind of rhetoric, some of the same misguided military uh, missions without real sense of the political uh, uh, program connected to it. And uh, uh, in, in, in my, my reading of the situation, a very different domestic context, far less or hardly any dissent. Right. A kind of mass conformity to the decision to go in uh, in the way that they have and, and, and to countenance mass civilian casualties in response to what happened on the 7th. Yeah, um, one, if I can just jump in yeah, here. So, um, one thing that you know also is an unintended consequence of this Lebanon war is that it gives the space um, and some legitimacy for the rise of Hezbollah, right? So that uh, you create the conditions where People who have effectively nothing to lose um, are able to drift uh, to movements that might be even more uh, radical and violent than the ones that were your erstwhile enemies to begin with. Um, do you see, you know, I, and I know, as, as you just said, it is far too early uh, to predict anything. And I know um, us historians are loath to predict things. Um, we leave that to the political scientists. Um, uh, but um, do you see the possibility of um, not Hamas, but like Hamas 2.0 uh, emerging out of this that might be even more uh, ruthless and bloodthirsty. Um, is that is that something that you're concerned about? Well, I think it's just a fundamental need to think about the roots of where Hamas comes from and how it's related to the Palestinian national movement, which is as long as there is a deprivation of rights and there is not a political horizon for Palestinian politics, there is going to be some form of resistance to that condition. And that doesn't mean you have to accept or legitimate the forms of that resistance and historically, we can think about lots of comparable examples. We can think about the FLN, we can think about the ANC, and the limits and sort of utility of these comparisons. But ultimately, one should be understanding that Hamas and thinking about Hamas in relationship to this wider history comes on the heels of the PLO and its own 
both successes politically and failures and the the fact that there is not a resolution to Palestinian political claims is going to drive uh, 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 this kind of um, response. And of course, all of that is to, to also say that there is obviously the agency of Palestinians themselves to make these decisions to how they think about what forms of um, uh, a political engagement or uh, a, a, a sort of responses they have to the conditions of their statelessness and of the, 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 the realities that they are living with. Um, but uh, it doesn't go away until the drivers politically are resolved. And so anybody who thinks historically understands this. And it's not to say that this is a repeat of the Tet Offensive or this is all the FLN, but the parallels are striking yeah. that in conditions of uh, uh, suppression of mass populations on the scale of what you see in the case of Palestine and Palestinian life, both in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and even in Israel and more broadly, there's going to be some form of, uh, of opposition to that. Um, so why are we surprised? It, it, that it, it is it is happening, and and I think most people who are paying attention understand or understood the reality of daily life in Palestine and and in Gaza in particular, were shocked by the scale of what happened on October seventh, but were not particularly shocked to know that there was a a, a roiling uh, discontent and and rage. Um, what it means for the future or where it goes, you know, yeah, it's impossible to know, but also um, the the, the, the sense of um, believing you can kind of sidestep those questions or, you know, there's a lot of chatter and talk both in the Israeli diplomatic and military establishment and even here in the U.S. about the day after, what it looks like in Gaza, who you're going to put into power, which, you know, Palestinian figure is going to be legitimated as a kind of successor. And I think all of these are disconnected from what actual political sentiment looks like on the ground and how people respond to the conditions of mass violence that they're experiencing right now. Um, and in the case, uh, of course, of what happens in the south of Lebanon in the 70s and into the 80s and early 90s, yeah, you have no way of knowing that this invasion does metastasize, to some extent, the rise of Hezbollah as a political force and as a military force. So those unintended consequences are very much part and parcel of what I think is, is happening here. Um, one other thing I would just say is, um, you know, it's not only limited to the question of what happens, for example, in the Palestinian political polity internally, or in the case of, uh, uh, of, of other examples, you know, what happens in these moments of anti-colonial violence and, uh, and, and resistance and the reaction to it and kind of suppression that happens. Um, there are wider fallout, like there's, there's a whole regional story of how all of this is going to play out and what it means for Jordan, for Egypt, what it means that, you know, the Houthis are paralyzing shipping lines in the Red Sea, but also what it means then for Jewish and Arab communities in Europe and the United States, how the fallout from this war is shaping those constituencies and is, you know, in your own context of thinking about France, for example, what happens in Algeria doesn't stay in Algeria. Of course, Algeria. right. So I'm, 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 th I'm thinking a lot about those repercussions as well.
mean, I mean the thing is that we're already seeing it ramify across the earth in various ways, down into local communities, down into conversations with uh, friends and relatives uh, and our communities. So um, the ripples are there, right? Um, how far they go and what they will transform, we will see. All right, Tony, you want to jump in here? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, a couple things. One is, what do you think, like, what's the, the main thing people don't understand about this conflict? You know, it's, you were saying earlier, like, when people told you you can't ask these questions, it, it made you attracted to it. And I'm kind of the same way, where everyone's like, you shouldn't talk about this. And I'm like, sneaking into the conversations, like, and it is, it feels complicated. And then it doesn't feel complicated. Um, like, I guess what's a bit disturbing is like we've gotten to a place um, where we just have these big opinions, but those big opinions are they equal like people dying, like on both sides, like the Israeli soldiers that are getting killed, the Palestinians that are getting bombed. And it's very easy to just say, well, Hamas should release the hostages or Israel should, should there should be a ceasefire and they should stop fighting. And of course, I think all of that. But, you know, what is like the big thing for people that have never been to Palestine um, that like we just don't understand about maybe their perspective on this? Because, you know, you've been there and I can go by what I see on the Internet, but none of us really have ever gotten to see behind that curtain. Like what what do you think we need to all understand in order to, to really form an opinion or to to understand kind of where this might go? I mean, in some ways, it boils down to how we think about nationalism, our own mm -hmm. relationship to it and other people's relationship to it, that the attraction of the nation state or ideas of attachment to territory, to land, to ideology are a universal phenomenon of the modern era. And we're all contending with it here in the United States and elsewhere. And the rise of Zionism and also the rise of Palestinian nationalism are connected to people's uh, feelings of attachment to territory, to language, to ideology, to land. Those are deep. Those are deeply entwined in their sense of self. And so when there is some kind of uh, threat to those feelings of attachment, uh, there are responses and reactions that I think we see in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian encounter and the, the wars between uh, Israel and its Arab neighbors that have gone on for, for decades that emanate from the central question of what happens with the rise of Zionism and its encounter with Palestinians in Palestine in Ottoman and later British Mandatory Palestine, which is an incompatibility and a debate over resources and land and a sense of who gets uh, to, to be able to have this feeling of belonging and attachment. And for lots of contingent, interesting, debatable reasons, the success of the Zionist movement and the success of Israel since 1948 has managed to uh, provide for uh, you know Jewish Israelis and in the context of Zionism kind of Jewish collective sense of self-determination a nation-state that is recognized and that has uh, a, a very powerful army and a very powerful sense of um, its own um, uh, kind of ability to, to keep control and, and sovereign power and yet at the same time has not resolved the status of the non-Jewish inhabitants living in the same place. 
And so when you go to Israel and to Palestine, when you actually are in the West Bank, you see very clearly the consequences of this, that the decision not to decide, as we say from the 1967 war, but also going back to some of the questions raised by 1948, when you have a stateless population who don't have those same political rights and don't have that recognition, uh, and you only afford those rights and abilities and access and movement to one group in a kind of ethno-national context, it's not going to uh, lead to a sense of equity and justice. And these realities that are structurally kind of part and parcel of understanding or thinking about histories of nationalism are what cyclically then play out. And obviously they take on new forms and what you see now is different than what you saw in 67 or 73, et cetera, or in the context of the first and second intifadas. But underlying it is if you have a group that is not uh, uh, afforded or does not have the ability to express some kind of political self-determination and rights, there is going to be a, a, a much deeper sense of exclusion that's going to play out consistently. You know, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, who, who has written very, um, I think, uh, movingly and, and, and impressively, um, in particular now about what's happening in Gaza, and he spent time in the West Bank about a year or two ago and is thinking a lot about this, his whole point is that this idea of complexity is often a shroud to talk about the fact that there is a reality on the ground that evokes the feelings of Jim Crow, that there's ability for, in, in particular places and spaces, for Jews and Israeli citizens to have certain rights and access and ability that Arabs and Palestinians do not. And obviously it's different in the case of Palestinian citizens of Israel and there's different registers of rights and equality. <coughs> But that structural condition of inclusion and exclusion is, I think, the basis of understanding some of the dynamics we've been seeing for, 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 for many decades. Do you think, you know, obviously we all lived through September 11th, and there are obviously some parallels between kind of what's going on, you know, a terrorist attack, which then, you know, a whole, they get a whole country rallied behind possibly a one of the bigger blunders in U.S. history is in terms of invasions and wars. Do you think that, and it's hindsight, but that's some restraint after October 7th, which is hard for a government to, you know, totally restrain yourself. When you get attacked like that, it's, I do believe that there, it does require some sort of a response just to make people feel like, okay, we have some power in the situation. But do you do you think that's some restraint and and possibly, you know, working with the government of the West Bank to try to figure this out would have worked better, or 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 is the was there just, or is that not a possibility either? Well, I mean, a, a few things to say. First of all, is is to say I think what many have said, which is that history doesn't start on October seventh. It's not right. that there wasn't something abominable and shocking about what happened on the seventh, and you know. I have colleagues and friends who have been affected by it, and it's 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 horrific what happened, uh, and 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 the, the the any society dealing with a uh, an episode of violence on that scale and and and, and to that extent, um, there is there is in a way it is not surprising that it induces existential dread, fear, and anxiety, which in this case is even more extreme because of the 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 kind of idea or the sense that the state was able to protect itself and its citizens you know one of the most shocking things of what happened after october 7th is the absence of the army from the ability to protect the gaza seam line because many of those units were in the west bank protecting settlers 
on the Sukkot holiday at the same time. So there's a huge amount of internal anger and domestic criticism of the actual behavior of the army and all of this. And it taps into a kind of dread about the lack of security and, and things that go back to the core of, well, if we built the state and we have the strong military, why can't it protect us? So in that context, I think we should understand what it psychologically and, and emotionally has done in a way to Israeli society. But of course, for Palestinians living in Gaza, but more broadly, the day-to-day experience of life well before October 7th was induced with the same kind of dread and existential fear of their own safety and their ability to function on a day-to-day life and have the things that you and I might expect as kind of norms. And so uh, from their vantage point, uh, the experience of, um, of violence for years or the experience of the blockade or the experience of living in that kind of environment, whatever it is you may feel about the political leadership that they did democratically elect in 2006, um, it has its own trajectory. And I think we kind of tend to not be able to account for that when we talk about this war and we have to kind of force ourselves to do that continually. I also think that um, when we talk about who and how Israelis respond, you know, you, you said, well, can they talk to the West Bank government? But there is no West Bank government. There's governance of the Palestinian Authority, which is set up under the Oslo Accords and under the thumb of Israeli security control. So when you are in control of these territories, you are also responsible for the fate of the inhabitants and the security and the conditions of everyday life. So in a way, it's a state talking about its own territorial or hegemonic um, political space. I think that uh, one of the things that this question of the 9-11 parallel forces us to ask is what happens um, from the vantage point of how you resolve uh, a crisis of this nature with some kind of political program? Or do you look at it only in military terms? And in the case of Israel's response to this particular specific attack, but more broadly, there's a kind of, you know, a, a military instinct that everything requires military force and military response, but without accounting for the drivers of what creates the conditions of this political violence. And that, I think, is uh, in a way an, an own goal. And you see this even from the intelligence and military establishment in Israel now, talking about the limits of some of what they asserted would be possible in this military operation. Can you really defeat Hamas? Can you really create the conditions of uh, uh, changing um, you know, what, 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 what is actually structurally unaddressed? And they're finding very clearly that the answer is, is not really or not necessarily without some kind of bigger picture of what the day after looks like, who takes over, how do you deal with these bigger questions? And of course, American military advisors have been telling them this. If you look at the early discussions between Lloyd Austin when he visited uh, Jerusalem, he was warning the Israelis, what kind of war is this going to be? Are you going to be able to actually achieve your strategic aims without this kind of question of political program? Like if you've learned anything from the experience of Vietnam, the experience dealing with the FLN, the experience, oh, I don't know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, did anybody really think this was going to be a cakewalk? And of course, people who had understanding of the dynamics on the ground were saying this immediately. 
would it have been possible to imagine that there would have been a greater international sympathy or understanding of the condition Israelis found themselves in and maybe there would be some other way to address this issue? Yeah, some have said that's the case and I think they're probably correct. But a lot of that was immediately uh, sort of put to the side in the service of what I can also think through in psychoanalytic terms as a kind of uh, a, 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 a response of, of, of rage and a response of uh, destruction in the face of the powerlessness uh, and the failures of October 7th. But that doesn't resolve the political problem. And you know, here we are with nearly 30,000 people dead and, and, and thousands of others wounded. And you ask yourself, what is the long-term consequence of that? Yeah, it's, and then I'm, I'm going to throw it back to you. It's, it's, there's parallels all over this. It's, it's, I get into these big debates with people all the time when crime is up and the solution is vote for the candidate that wants more cops. And it's like, why is it so hard to rethink this and go, well, maybe if we had some social programs and we tapped in young and we had after school programs and school lunches, maybe that would breed uh, people that don't turn to crime. And it's like that same psychology is exactly what you're talking about, which is the United States military, which is apparently the greatest military in the history of the world, lost two wars. <laughs> like where the Taliban is now governing Afghanistan. And it's like, why do, why are we constantly supporting these these invasions where we already know how this is going to end. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we know it's not going to be peace and harmony and all the hostages are released and uh, Palestine and Israel are holding hands and everything's wonderful because it's never worked where you go in and you annihilate some, you know, a society and, 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 a, and, a, and a people and then suddenly we're all friends. But the, the, in this case, there's also the fact that there is strategic U.S. interests at stake as well, which are compromised. You know, there are American soldiers who were killed on a base in in Jordan in the in the aftermath of this. There's there, there's a, a story here that's also about America's position in the region and and its and the implications. And obviously, you you've probably read of the resignation of Josh Paul, who worked in the arms procurement in the State Department. There were people on the inside who understood immediately that this was a very dangerous precedent to go down this path without thinking through the strategic implications. Uh, the fact that it's still proceeding in this direction and the, the administration uh, until now, besides some rhetorical flourishes, is not, um, is not able to uh, sort of address those deeper questions, I think for me as a taxpaying citizen is deeply, deeply troubling and disturbing. And even if I didn't think about the strategic, but I only thought about the political implications, does the president and his uh, reelection staff believe that this is going to secure them another four years? Because the evidence is now very much speaking against that. And if you want to talk to voters in Michigan, and if you want to think about how this war is playing out electorally, uh, that also doesn't sort of add up at all to me uh, in yeah. any way. Yeah, I wasn't going to go there, but I am I am like, we know Biden's losing the Arab vote, the Muslim vote and the Arab vote, and a lot of the black vote, especially in Michigan. That that to me is like, Michigan is really interesting to me. Um, my guess is, and it's unfortunate that because an election is coming up and Biden is already on thin ice because Biden, uh, I think any move they make, 
the GOP jumps on. So if Biden were to start criticizing and try to pull this back, well, then the Trumpers are they're our greatest ally. How dare you do this? And I unfortunately, I I don't think either of these two candidates is going to be able to do anything here to, to save this. But that, that also tells you something about the shrinking space of both American political culture, but around this specific issue. And one of the things I wrote about in this essay is if you consider the parallel of the saturation bombing of West Beirut in August of 1982 and President Reagan's call to Menachem Begin, the Israeli prime minister, ordering him to stop the bombing and to have a ceasefire, as I said in the piece, and as I think would be the case, such a call would be considered treasonous today. So you have to ask yourself, what has changed in the 40 plus years that has narrowed the space of political possibility and of American leverage? Because it's the same amount of weapons and aid and of support, but there seems to be this feeling that you can't actually put the pause on or say to the ally, this is bad strategically or bad militarily. And instead, it's kind of this pernicious feeling of enabling. And that, to me, is really surprising in a period of only four decades, that what was possible, and this is you know, not to elevate Reagan to a kind of position of somebody who took a really hard line. Obviously, there's lots of really important uh, moments of agreement and alignment. I mean, the Reagan administration green, greenlit the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in May of 1982, as I've discovered in, in, in documents from the State Department, etc. So, they, they, you know, I don't want to, to to sort of put them on a pedestal, but the fact that that critique was happening, where are we at now? Yeah, it seems like the, the teeth or any um, sort of provisos coming with the aid, uh, it's transformed into sort of an entitlement. Right, that that this is just a sort of de rigueur, and uh, there should be no questions asked. And if you do ask questions about how this aid might be used, um, you know, as you put it, treasonous, um, or 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 perhaps you know, there's there's language of being anti-Semitic as well, right? That that effectively what you're saying is that you don't want the Jewish state to protect itself, right? Like that 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 framing. Um, cuts off other sort of conditions of possibility thinking through this um, this conflict. At, this, at the same time, what's interesting to note is if you look at the number of uh, congressmen, for example, congresswomen, and the conversation that has opened up about conditioning aid, it is very different now than it was a year or two or three ago. Or you look at Senator Chris Van Hollen and his engagement on these questions from a state where, you know, he has his own political context to be concerned about. I think there is much more of an open and honest conversation about some of these dynamics and questions of what is appropriate and not appropriate, what kind of oversight needs to be used and employed um, in military and, and aid terms. Um, so it's not all in the direction of a kind of foreclosing of those possibilities. I think certain political space is opening up. The question is how do you capitalize on that and how does it bring about a certain kind of structural change? yeah I mean that's I think that's right and but the un, the unfortunate outcomes have been you know yet another US veto right <laughs> that that, that at, at when it, when the buck stops right so to speak um, to for massive decisions uh, it seems like there is I don't know just a sort of normalization um, of this relationship and the sort of military aid that that 
is one of the bonds of, of this relationship uh, that seems surprisingly durable, right? I, I guess I, that's that's where I end up. And I know we're we're kind of running out of time here, but I wanted to end with kind of alighting upon something you said before, because it's also, you know, my analysis of it is that this is about competing nationalisms um, and what nationalism can do to people um, on a very sort of, you know, real everyday level as well. Um, I'm wondering, you know, there's the two state solution, there's the one state solution um, that Netanyahu has in mind. Uh, and then there's uh, the sort of binational one state solution. And I'm just wondering, is there any thought out there about new thinking about political attachment? Um, yeah. So, you know, that, you know, that is nationalism the solution? Some tinkering around the edges with yeah. nationalism. Is there are there other ways of thinking through coexistence, living together, integration and attachment? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the the things that I think is really shifted in civil society, and you see this both amongst Israelis and Palestinians, uh, and it's still in small numbers, but a move away from a partitionist model. I think in particular, the understanding and the analysis of what's happening in Israel and Palestine through the lens of apartheid, which was promoted by Palestinian groups, but also by B'Tselem, the leading Israeli human rights group, and obviously Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, that language and the idea and thinking and understanding uh, of the conditions of reality through the lens of apartheid, with all of its differences as well from the South African model, has driven people away from partitionist interpretations and into a kind of question of, well, how do you, how do you secure rights for Jews and non-Jews in the same political space? And what does it mean for Palestinians to have those rights, but what does it also mean for Jews who live there and who have uh, a presence there. How do you deal with that reality? And I think there are those conversations that have been happening. They were happening certainly before October 7th and they will have to continue to happen um, because they're less focused on the, the, the version of what kind of political or statist outcome we're sort of wired to think about and they're much more concerned with a values-based understanding of equity and justice. And so what does it mean then to be able to secure those rights for you know everybody who lives between the river and the sea and what does it look like in real terms and how do you protect the individual and collective interests of different communities and those kinds of ideas and questions and thinking you know ottomanists or people who work on you know the british or french mandate would say oh well, we should be thinking about the 19th and 20th century and so there are ways of kind of considering some of that obviously it's it's not a, a mere continuation of that it's something very different has happened and you know people have legitimate questions of how am I going to live with X or Y or Z in the context of this current moment? But one of the things that I take away from what I have been experiencing and seeing since this war is also the great danger of dehumanization that nationalism makes possible. You know, I call this the kind of version of Raider Rwanda I see on this war. People are totally in a zone and in a headspace of thinking about the other in totally dehumanizing terms. And that also enables a certain kind of political violence. And to get out of that mode, to have the capacity to think across you know, your kith and kin and to think beyond your ethnicity or beyond your religious community and think about the impact that this has on other people in the same 
political space, it's not being done nearly enough. And I, I fear, and what I worry is that the kind of dynamics of, um, uh, of, of, of almost wanting to erase the other, of not to account or think about their presence, actually creates the conditions of greater political violence. And how do we get out of that trap? How do we really take seriously the fact that there are Arabs and there are Jews in this political space? And there are Jewish and Arab communities and Palestinian and Israeli communities that are dealing with the fallout of political violence and have been way before October 7th. And instead, what you see is a tendency for everybody to kind of like retreat to a communal or a national space of identification and belonging. And that's the recipe for really horrific kinds of violence. And the, the, the precedent historically is, 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 you know, you can think about lots of examples of how that functioned, but if you lack the capacity to look beyond your own community and understand the implications for what is happening on others, you end up in a very dark place. And so what I'm concerned about is, is how you undo that. And in, in some sense, to me, that seems more important than the obsessive question of, is it two state, is it one state, is it four state, is it eight state? Like, th those, are, those are questions about form, and I think we should be thinking a lot more about content. Thank you. Um, that makes a lot of sense, and I think it illuminates your title even more, Let Us Not Hurry to Our Doom, um, which is the title of the piece in the New York Review of Books. Everybody should read that. Uh, everybody should also take a look at his wonderful book. This is, again, Seth and Ziska, uh, Preventing Palestine, uh, which is, you know, just just a marvelous book. Um, Seth, thank you so much for being with us thank today. Um, and it was great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad I was able to have this conversation. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Yeah. Um, so Seth is amazing. I'm so glad we were able to get him on. Um, and yeah, unbelievable. And I really, you know, I'm I'm not just flattering him. the The book he wrote, Preventing Palestine, is anybody who's actually interested in this subject and wants to know something about its political history. Um, it's a must read. You know, it, it's it's a big gap in your knowledge if if you want to you know, think through this topic carefully. Um, you got to read that book. Um, so yeah, I'm very psyched he was able to come on. Um, we've been hit or miss lately with, <laughs> with the consistency. I know, I know you, hit. Yeah, yeah, right. No yeah, hits. Yeah. Miss. A lot of, a lot of miss. Um, you know, so, but we'll be, we'll, we'll get back on it. We got a lot of good stuff. I, I know you happen to have a baby and you started a business and you know, you're busy. I get it. I get it. Um, but we're, I'm busy. Yeah. 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 You're eating baguettes in France <laughs> for three weeks. <laughs> it's hard work, man. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to look yeah, through those dusty totally. archives. Um, totally. All right. So we're going to be back. We won't say when, but we'll, we'll, we will be back. We'll be back. And we're going to try to do better, be more consistent. And we're, and we're going to get back to some of the politics as well, because, uh, Lord knows they are up and running and the election is going to be here before we know it. Perfect.
No Politics at the Dinner Table is produced by Amit Pakash. Um, tunes by G. Baderoy and our theme song by Alex Tepper. Um, jump on our website and uh, we'll see you soon. See you soon.